Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of philosophy. But before we get into what the predominant philosophies are and how we predict these philosophies are going to evolve in America and across the world going forward, I thought it would be awesome if we first started out with the eight great philosophical questions. And Justin and I can each give our take on those questions. And some of them are quite a doozy. So here they are. Question one, why is there something rather than nothing? In other words, we know that the Big Bang existed. At least most people agree on that fact. Why was there a Big Bang? Why not just no Big Bang at all? And hold your answer because I'm just going to list out the questions first. The second one, is our universe real? Third, do we have free will? Fourth, does God exist? Is there life after death? Then, what is the best moral system? And can you really experience anything objectively? And then I guess part two of that last question, which is related, is what are numbers? So these are going to be the eight questions that we're going to discuss right now. Justin and I have not discussed any of these with each other previously. I mean, we've probably touched on some of them, like free will and religion. But anyways, let's start with the first one. So why is there something rather than nothing? Why was there a Big Bang instead of no Big Bang at all? Why is there anything in this universe? So Justin, I'll let you start out on that. Okay. I think think the question itself is a little it has a lot of assumptions behind it because it it assumes that we have some sort of understanding of the nature of reality and in my opinion we don't know we think we know something about reality i think that we know vastly less than we think we know about reality and I don't think I don't think a lot of people really understand the Big Bang, but there's just so much physical evidence pointing to something like a Big Bang. So if you you have of these these models and this this math that kind of describes the nature of reality and how it's progressed through time or the nature of the cosmos, working our way back from that, it inevitably leads to what we would consider the Big Bang. But that doesn't... It's really hard to wrap my mind around there being nothing. And and I kind of think I know what you're getting at, which is that the Big Bang is a really attractive idea, and there's a lot of evidence for it, because it's like, oh, the Big Bang, that's when it all happened. And God Mm -hmm. said, let there be light, and then it just happened right then. That's the starting point. But to choose any starting point is very arbitrary because it's there's so much at play. Like take, you know, one example that Alan Watts gives is when is a baby conceived? Was the baby conceived the moment that the sperm fertilized the egg? Or was the baby conceived the moment that the mother and father fell in love with each other? Or maybe the moment that the mother and father met each other? or maybe the moment that either the mother or father was born, 
or maybe you can bring it all the way back to Adam and Eve or, you know, whoever the first like real humans were that evolved from, from apes. Or even further, or even further, the beginning of the universe. Yeah. All the way back to the big bang. So really any starting point is, is, uh, very arbitrary. The other thing that that'll tie into our free will question. Yeah, as well. Definitely. The other thing that I'll say is that I agree that I think the question is a bit misguided, misconstrued, because to say, why is there something rather than nothing for there to be nothing in the universe? Nothing only exists as a word in contrast to something. So you can't say like, oh, there's an if there's a nothing universe, then there's there's nothing to be experienced. There's no consciousness. So there isn't even any term of nothing that could apply to it because there's no beings to experience it. Similar mm-hmm. to like the if a tree falls in a woods and no one's around to hear it sort of thing. Right. So, yeah, so the universe just is, is it would be my answer. There's no why. The universe mm-hmm. just is. There is this great cosmic dance that's going on, and to put any why to that or to put any first cause would be an inadequate mapping of our monkey brains onto something that's so much more complex than that. Yeah, because there might not even be, you know, in the true universe the 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 overall universe that we know nothing about there might be no such thing as a beginning right well because we experience the arrow of time that's something physicists talk about all the time stephen hawking talks a lot Mm -hmm. about it where we can go forward in fact we have no choice but to keep going forward with time we cannot go back we cannot go side to side with different parallel universes we are always marching forward, but there's no reason to think that that would exist for all conscious beings everywhere in the cosmos in the same way that we can go backwards and forward and side to side in 3D space. It's quite conceivable and there's lots of mathematical and scientific evidence that other higher beings in, in higher dimensions, you would be able to go in any direction within time. So I think that kind of obliterates the whole idea of their being any starting point for for anything um Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think uh we've talked about this before but this is one of the theories i have about what the big bang actually is so if if you think about our fabric of the cosmos or what we what we experience it seems like it's 3d but if you think about what a 4D what a four-dimensional object interacting with a three-dimensional object is, so for example, take a sphere, a four-dimensional sphere interacting with three dimensions. If that sphere starts in the fourth dimension, but it's not touching the three-dimensional fabric, nothing is there. Then once that four-dimensional sphere comes into contact with our three-dimensional world, it just appears out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, as a super tiny point. And then as it continues into our three-dimensional space, it looks like it's just a sphere that gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the midpoint at the biggest 
part of the sphere, and then it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So from our perspective, it looks like something just came out of nowhere. And then it disappears eventually. So one of one of the things I have a fun time thinking about is what that actually could mean for us. You know, what that is actually the bang. Something like that is what the Big Bang is. Just a, a higher dimensional object coming into contact with a lower dimensional space of some sort. Right. And I think from our observations in quantum physics, there's there are a lot of things that we can't explain. And that might be because we're butting up against a higher dimensionality reality that we mm-hmm. can't con- conceive of. And we should talk more about that in, in some of the later questions, especially around what are numbers and can you really experience anything objectively? So I want to save some of that discussion. Mm-hmm. But let's let's go on to the next one. So the next okay. one is, so is our universe real? Yeah. Uh, so again, I think this depends on what, what the true definition of real is. Yeah. I mean, that, that'll get into another question, you know, can we experience anything objectively? Right. I don't know. Yeah, but these from, questions all from, sort of weave together. But from the subjective pers- uh, experience, uh, yeah, I mean, the universe definitely seems real. Even if we're in a simulation, it seems real to me. Yeah. I think what I would say on that question is that it is as real as real is to us. I mean, that's why we created the world. So I agree with you there. As far as is it real in the highest objective sense, I think it's helpful to look at other animals and what their reality is and how that's different from our reality. Like, for instance, what is it like to be a bat who echolocates? Or what is it like to be a dog that sees in black and white but that has incredible sense of smell? You know, what is it like to be all of these animals, like an orca, for instance, that has an entire part of its brain that we don't have dedicated to emotional communication? And it's probably very different than what it's like to be us. And to a lesser degree, there are differences from one human to the next. So what it's like to be me is different than what it's like to be Justin, is different than what it's like to be Roseanne Barr, is different than what it's like to be... Joe Rogan or whoever. Mm -hmm. So I think when we talk about what is real, there's personal reality. And then there's also the collective reality, which is where realities overlap. And I think that's more of what people talk about in scientific circles, where it's like, well, is this real? Does it withstand the test of science and the scientific method? And even that is very hard to get at. So maybe we should just jump into, can you really experience anything objectively? Because I think that they're, they're too similar to not talk about one after the other. Okay. But that, I think, can we experience anything objectively is what you were saying earlier, where we can only experience obje- uh, re- reality or, or objectively as far as we can perceive through our senses with the resolution that we can. So the mm-hmm. certain wavelengths that we can see, the certain wavelengths that we can hear, 
the different smells that we can smell, we're limited to those degrees and we're limited to all the dimensions that we don't even have an inkling of. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I would pretty much agree completely because I think we we can approximate objectivity, but I don't think given the narrow band of what we can actually experience, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think we can actually get that close in a lot of cases. But there are some idealized cases, you know, that are very specific to, I don't know, numbers, you know, can we, can we experience what a, what two is? Can we experience what three is? We have a pretty objective sense of what those things are when you look at it rigorously. Well, I'm not so sure though. I mean, I want to get into numbers as the next one, but just to close the loop on this, uh, what is, can we experience anything objectively? I feel like the answer is no, simply mm -hmm. because, you know, again, going back to quantum mechanics, when we keep cutting things down to smaller and smaller degrees, there's the famous double slit experiment, which is that when someone is observing these atoms going through this slit, these two slits, it appears as atoms or it appears as particles. Part Whereas when you are, when someone is not actively looking at it, it appears as waves. So, and to, to add a little bit to that, it's not somebody looking at it. It's, it's trying to device. measure what, like the momentum or the position of this particle. Cause right. there's a trade off in how, in how accurately you can figure out where the particle is or, um, what the momentum of this part. So even if we're looking at it, it doesn't, it doesn't change but well okay i guess it does because if if we're looking at it then the photons are bouncing off of that and then it collapses the way yeah i mean anyone I who's listening true. anyone who's listening to this should just youtube double slit experiment and watch the video because it's it's really difficult to explain but the point of the matter is is that it appears that by observing a phenomenon you change the phenomenon itself so that I believe is proof that nothing is to totally objective. There's not us and then the objective universe. It's this dance and this interplay of all of the conscious beings observing everything and all of the what we would call inorganic or non-conscious beings that are also part of the interplay. So to say that anything's objective would, I think, go against Einstein's theory of relativity and what we've discovered in quantum mechanics as well. So I would just say, no, there is nothing we can experience objectively, but the closest we can get is through science and through numbers. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add a little bit there. I think there are some things that we can't experience objectively, like some sort of quantum effect. Some, there are definitely some things that we just can't wrap our heads around and we can't actually know, you know, we can't know the again, the position and the momentum of a particle with well, 100% So what certainty. could we experience objectively then? 
Well, we can experience, kind of like I was saying, we can experience the number two. We can experience the, um, let's, well, I was going to say temperature, but there's a lot of nuances to temperature because that's, temperature is like the emergent right. property of a bunch of particles moving quickly or slowly. Um, but but I think there are some things that yeah. we can so experience let's... objectively because we have a rigorous definition of some things. Yeah. So that leads to the numbers question. So I, I agree with you that if anything, if there's anything we can experience objectively, numbers are it. Like, for instance, like if you're watching the video now, how many fingers am I holding up? Three. So would you say that three is a part of this video image that you're looking at? So... I have I have sort I have some thoughts about it. I think three is a nice abstraction to things that happen right. in reality. Because um, three, you know, having three fingers up doesn't necessarily add you know the property three to the video. Um, I don't think. That, I'm, yeah. So the, I guess I mean, this is this among. So I guess the point that I'm getting at saying? is, is uh, in metaphysics, there seems to be really two camps as far as the philosophy of numbers. One camp is mm -hmm. the Platonic camp, which is what Plato purported to be true, which is that it's not just that we conceptualize numbers, it's that numbers very much do exist in some higher dimensional version of the universe in some truly objective way. The other camp is the conceptual camp, which is that numbers are just concepts that are very useful to us. So in the concept of three, having three fingers is more of a useful concept. And I think for most people, it helps explain, it helps explain the overlap of rationality that humans experience. Mm-hmm. And whether or not it exists. So I, I tend to be a little bit more in the conceptual camp. However, I, I also think that. Well, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, it's very hard to say because I think numbers really what they're getting at is they're helping to explain how the mind works, specifically the reason function of the mind. And then to go further, because the mind is created by nature, created by the workings of the universe, I think it can also help explain the workings of nature or the workings of the universe. So mm -hmm. as far as rationality spreads, and we don't know how far that spreads to other species, but with humans, it has been one of the single greatest drivers of our progress as a species. And I think that it's in itself speaks to how powerful numbers are and how powerful rationality is. And when you're trying to explain the workings of the universe, numbers do the best job because that is common. Like we can all agree every what we would call a sane person would agree that I was holding up three fingers a while ago. There are insane people who would argue that they, they just cannot they cannot comprehend <laughs> the idea of numbers. But for all sane people, that is the anchor that holds us all together in the most fundamental sense. Yeah, it does. The nice thing, like you said, it explains such a wide variety of phenomena, 
just things that happen in nature. Um, and you can extend numbers to a whole bunch of other systems. So just as a brief overview, you've got the natural numbers, which is like the counting numbers, mm -hmm. one, two, three, four. And then an extension of that is the integers, which includes zero and negative numbers. And then you have an extension of that, which is rational numbers, which are just fractions. So mm -hmm. any number that can be expressed as a fraction. And then you have real numbers, which is the real number line where, you know, you learned in school where there's an infinite number of there's an infinite number of real numbers between zero and one. You know, mm. it's it's a very large set of numbers. One point one one, one point one two, one point. Yeah. Yeah. But as much forever. as. Yeah, exactly. And then and then you can even the one of the things I find really interesting, too, is the numbers just keep extending. So one of the things that one of the number systems that's very good at explaining a lot of things in nature are the complex numbers. Mm. And I think I think these are unfortunately taught in school and that there is imaginary numbers, which like is e. the most unfortunate name they could have possibly had. Yeah. Well, E. So E is just a number. I so square root of negative one is I, um, which doesn't make sense in the real numbers because there's no definition of square root of a yeah. negative number. But so if you think of the real numbers as just a line, a single line, mm -hmm. you can think of complex numbers as a plane. So a two dimensional number system. Um, in other words, the upside down from stranger things. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Um but yeah, there's there's a lot of really cool things that you can do with these more com more and more complicated versions of numbers. So what's you know, what's the use use of having imaginary numbers? That's something I've never understood. I get the concept. Okay. Let's talk about something that we see every single day. The so we're on Skype right now. And if you've ever heard of something called a Fourier transform, yeah. which basically is what converts, you can go between a frequency to a, like from a whole bunch of different frequencies over time to just some, um, well, so there's a lot of complications to this. But basically, uh, the, the most concise way to put this is you can change from the time domain so think of the x-axis as time oh. to the frequency domain where you think of the x-axis as frequency hmm. so everything everything that's happening right now over skype is using the fourier transform everything anything involving signals the entire uh basis of like signal processing has to do with the Fourier transform. Hmm. And I'm, I'm harping on the Fourier transform because in the equation is I. And, and it's very nicely visualized if you think of a two-dimensional number system. And when you have I or E to the I, which is just a number raised to the I, you can visualize that as rotations around a circle. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a lot of complicated, uh, um, 
geometry behind this, I would recommend listeners go to the three blue, one brown uh, YouTube channel. Um, he, I mean, he is an awesome math educator on YouTube, and there's a whole geometric uh, or visualization of the Fourier transform. Highly recommended. I think it's yeah. beautiful. I mean, uh, I think what's so invaluable to me about numbers is that we can understand the basics of numbers pretty easily. I mean, you can get a second grader and they can understand, oh, two plus two equals four. You have two crayons that are red, you have two crayons that are blue, and then you have four crayons at the end. And you can extend that out, make it a little bit more complex. You can introduce algebra. You can introduce other things that still mm -hmm. pretty much make sense. And then just by extrapolating the principles of mathematics, you can bring it beyond what is comprehensible for us. I mean, we're, it's, the field is always expanding of what we can comprehend because we're, we're creating better ways of visualizing the data, which I think is really important for, like topographical mm -hmm. mapping, for instance, and those sorts yeah. of things. But the cool thing about math is that even those very, very complex, more advanced um, you know, mathematics still are anchored by the fundamental principles and if you believe in the fundamental principles and if you can believe and understand what's happening in the more basic levels then it can help describe what is even beyond what you could comprehend yeah and one thing to add there is you don't have to this is one thing that's so beautiful about math you don't have to believe in math now back in the early days of math, you did kind of have to believe in math. That's mm -hmm. when there was a lot of intuition-based proofs. Like geometry was huge during Da Vinci's yeah. day. Yeah, and, and then you would have these proofs that were based on intuition rather than rigor and logic. Mm. And this, this led to some paradoxes, um, specifically in calculus, I believe, because there's a lot of um, counterintuitive properties of infinity, and calculus was kind of the hmm. one of the first major um, branches of math where infinity was absolutely crucial, like taking an infinite sum or um, an infinite an infinitesimally small point on a curve, you know, for right. For these, for these different things in calculus. Um, but the nice thing now is it's rigorous. Mm -hmm. And there was a push, I believe, in the late 19th century, like late 1800s, where mathematicians were pushed to be as rigorous as possible. And if they weren't rigorous and held... Um, held up through the test of time and through all these peer reviews that the doesn't hold in reality and it isn't true. So that's one of the things I really like about math is just how rigorous it is, at least yeah. now. And would you agree, going back to the original question of what are numbers, what is math, do you agree that what numbers are and what math is, is a way for describing the rationality of the human mind and by extension, the rationality of the workings of nature and of the universe. 
Yeah, I, w- I would say that it's very similar to that. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily for describing the like the human mind, but I would say that it's it's a nice abstraction that it doesn't. So this will let me just go on a little soapbox for a second. So there's the, there's pure math, and then there's applied math. And I think pure math is just purely based on the question of what is true. What And it doesn't necessar- necessarily have to have any sort of grounding in reality or our experience of reality. No mm-hmm. apparent application of these pure mathematical concepts. And there have been countless examples of how this totally pure math, no application later on, maybe centuries later, became it became one of the more important things in applied math. So it's mm. there's not necessarily a reason for it. There's not necessarily a it's not crucial to understand math. But what, but what is it, it does, I guess? So I think it's just an abstraction that we have, like that humans have created or if but there are well, lots of abstractions I don't know if and, we created it like or if we discovered it there, there are lots of abstractions and I feel like mathematics is the most important or real or most anchoring of those abstractions so it is, mm-hmm. it is difficult to define but I, I feel like to me whenever I think of what it is I think of the wor- two words that come to mind are reason and objectivity even though we sort of demolished those with some of the previous questions, I feel like what we mean by reason and what we mean by objectivity is described even better, better than anything else by numbers and by mathematics. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to um, save some time for the other questions too. I mean, we could talk about numbers and debate this for, multiple podcasts, but right. So the last three questions that we have, do we have free will? Does God exist? Is there life after death? Sorry, it's four questions. And then the final one is what is the best moral system? So let's talk about free will first. So it certainly appears that we have free will to most people. So for instance, I'll I'll give an example just from two nights ago. I haven't told you this story, but so two nights ago, I went to a concert, a mother's concert, Um, this very cool indie sort of punk band, but pretty mellow also. It's whatever. And I was there with my brother. And at one point in the concert, I look back, I hear a sound and I look back and my brother fainted. And I go and I pick him up and you know, everyone was sort of looking at us, you know, concerned, oh, what happened? Wasn't a big deal. He ended up just being dehydrated. But we start, you know, the bouncer comes over, he starts like saying, oh, you guys okay, need water. We're sort of going out of there. And I left my credit card at the bar. So now I have to figure out, do I cancel my credit card, whatever. So the question that I'd like to pose is, did I have the free will to have remembered and gotten my credit card because I think anyone can relate to the fact of once I realized I left my credit card there with the tab open 
I was like, oh, how could I be so stupid? I've left my card open. It's all the way in downtown LA. Now I got to go all the way back there. Why couldn't I just have thought and remembered to get my credit card? Mm-hmm. And people, and that implies that I could have done differently, that there is free will. But I think with, I mean, I, I tend to agree with Sam Harris's take on this to a great extent. I don't agree 100% with what he says, and we can talk about that after, but he basically says that you could not have done any differently, given all of the circumstances that you had, the fact that there was something that required your attention right at that moment. You know, my brother had fainted. I had to deal with that. The fact that everyone was looking at us, you know, that also had an impact. The fact that the bouncer was sort of giving us water and ushering us to the back, that if I ran the clock back, there there is no other way that that would have occurred given all of those circumstances and given what my mind perceived to be the most important thing to focus on that time. My credit card, the thought of my credit card never arose. And the idea that you can think a thought before you think it, that you can make a thought arise out of mm-hmm. sheer, like just out of your own whim is, is an illusion. You cannot choose what comes to the top of your mind. You cannot choose what your thoughts are in any given moment. All you can do is respond to the given circumstances in the everlasting present based on your own brain, which you didn't pick, your own life experiences, which you didn't pick, your DNA, genetic composition, which you certainly didn't pick. And if you try to describe like what is the freedom, like what's the free will, the sliver gets smaller and smaller until it disappears into basically nothingness that is that is free. I yeah, I mean I basically agree with that. And and I even sometimes take this to an even greater extreme when I'm when I'm thinking about it. Because let's just say let's just go to the classical interpretation of the Big Bang. There was a giant explosion and then there were a whole bunch of particles that extended throughout you know, some sort of space-time fabric. Now, did the Big Bang just determine every single possible outcome of the future, including our own thoughts, including everything? So if we had a big enough supercomputer, would it be possible to, if we had the exact replication of the Big Bang, would we be able to simulate a reality similar to our own if we had a big enough computer and would that reality be different you know is is there there's a lot of questions that come up from this is is there like if you have the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics are does this big bang create an infinite number of realities where each one of those realities is its own own timeline with no such thing as free will because everything has been determined by the state of particles from everything beforehand right so yeah it's it's a really complicated question um right and i think that's one of the tricky things to square is the many worlds theory with there not being free will so it seems like i believe that 
and, and the other question that I think is really interesting, which I've actually been meaning to ask Sam Harris in the you know Q and A on his website, oh, yeah. is if there is no free will, why does it appear that we have free will? Why is this phenomenon of feeling like there is freedom so prevalent? And I feel like part of it might be that we are sensing the other universes that do exist on the conscious plane, even if we could not have chosen one of those other parallel universes. So basically, it's easy for me to imagine a universe where I did at the last minute say, oh, you know what, my credit card's at the bar. Hold on one minute. I'm just going to go get it. It's super easy to imagine that. And that's why so many people play the lottery and waste money is because it's so easy to imagine a universe where they're the ones that win. And if you believe in the many worlds theory, then there is a universe where you won the lottery. And so so it's, it's difficult for me to square that. So it's like, okay, either it is entirely deterministic, like, like Sam Harris says, where you could not have done otherwise based on all of the actions of all the beings. It is always, it always would have gone in this one direction, mm-hmm. which is sort of like the model that you were just talking about. If you were to build a model of the universe based on how computers work, it seems like it would just always have the same one unless you introduced an element of randomness into the equation. So that would be the other explanation, which is the universe is simply random where at any given time, because of, you know, as represented by the double split experiment or, you know, quantum physics, at any given time, some whim that comes out of seemingly nowhere that is truly random makes you decide to do one thing versus another. And so that is how the multiverse is created by that sort of random uh, effect that sort of burgeons into different forking paths. Yeah, and so part of this depends on what your definition of randomness is, because yeah. sometimes there there's a version of randomness or probability where it's not actually in the pure objective sense. It's not. So as as a quick example, let's say you're told to choose between three doors. And one of them has a million dollars, two of them are empty or, you know, like Schrodinger's cat is, you know, same sort of example. Yeah. And so in the, in the pure objective sense, there is, there is already that where that million dollars or the cat is alive or dead, that's already determined. You just don't know what it is yet. Right. So, so then you assign a probability. So without knowing where that door or where the million dollars is your probability of getting the million dollars is one third Mm -hmm. and then your probability of not is two thirds and same thing with the cat the probability that it's alive from your perspective is 50 percent the probability of it being dead from your perspective is also 50 percent but is is there some sort of way to get to the actual objective you know right. is... well it does seem like probability is the better way to describe the universe it seems oh, like oh yeah definitely through quant- like quantum computers are better at describing 
certain phenomena than traditional computers where the million dollar door was always there. It always, you know, couldn't have happened any other way. When we use probabilities, it tends to be a better mapping of reality. So I think because of that, there is some quote unquote randomness effect going into play. But then, like you said, the big question is, what do you mean? Like, what is the randomness? And something that I tend to believe in intuitively, which I don't have objective proof for, but which is my belief, which is somewhat different than Sam Harris. I agree with him on the minutia. When you take pretty much any singular decision, you really couldn't have decided it any other way. But I also believe that there is a general striving that each of us has that we want to do something. We want to become something. We want to reach some goal. We have our modus operandi. We have our way of, of our way of being. And that this striving is what's most essential to us as humans. It's what some people describe of as your soul or your eternal essence or your Atman or whatever that is. And that there is some freedom in choosing that direction with which we strive. So I think all of the minutia of like all the little decisions we make is sort of a, a fatalistic result of whatever our striving is, like basically whatever our system is optimizing for. But I believe that whatever that general striving is, I feel like if anything, that is, that is part of our freedom and that that freedom people have to, to different extents, but that all of those different sort of freedoms going together is what creates the realities that we have and where those diverge on higher conscious planes, higher dimensional planes is what creates the, the multiverse. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's... <laughs> that's the best way I can describe it. And it's really hard to obviously put this stuff to words. Yeah. But that's what I yeah, intuitively believe. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you for, for the most part. Um, I think, I think when you're talking about the people deciding, um, or free will, if, if we're talking about free will not existing, um, and it really is deterministic, I, I think this, that people don't have agency and can't have agency for their own lives it just means you know you still make decisions yeah um like stepping on someone's toe intentionally versus accidentally is a big difference it says a lot more about you if you intentionally step on someone's toe than if you do it by accident and if you get punished for stepping on the person's toe intentionally that's going to behave your, your that's going to change your behavior. You might think twice the next time you step on someone's toe. So I don't think it obliterates morality or the system of social law and order by saying that there's no free will. It's more just that you know, we have to change the systems of, you know, the carrots and the sticks of society so that what people strive towards is more in line with what what fits in with everyone else and what creates the greatest amount of conscious happiness as opposed to conscious suffering yeah i will uh, just reiterate your point on what it means for social law and order um because if one of the biggest examples of this is i'm blanking on his name but the guy that um was at the university of texas bell tower and 
shot a whole bunch of people with a rifle. Yeah. Um, he wrote a note saying, I feel weird. Please do an autopsy on me. Oh, basically, yeah. Because he had a huge tumor in his brain, which was pushing up against some part of his brain. I think the amygdala, the amygdala, the emotional regulator, um, maybe something else. Uh, but anyways, it was pushing up against a very important and crucial part of his brain. And it was making him act erratically and violently. And this kind of points to the fact that we don't necessarily have that much control over yeah. what's going on. And, and we, should, we should work on um, our social justice system because, you know, these people can't necessarily make these decisions for themselves. If you have a tumor in your brain that's causing you to act violently, yeah. that's not you consciously deciding to be violent that's some sort of external force that is causing it right yeah i mean it makes me think of when you were talking about that it made me think of the kavanaugh situation i don't want to get too into it but just the part where he says i worked my butt off to get into yale and he was it was all about how like he did this and he did that and look how great he is but it's like it's like okay like First of all, you came from a very blessed background. You came from a very good family. Your family probably instilled some values of work ethic in you. They probably got you to good schools. And you probably had some innate sense of ambition and some innate skills in that you were good at test taking and everything else. And because of your family, you probably had a good network of people from which to help you. And so in that sense, was it really you choosing to do to work your butt off and go to Yale or would you always have worked your butt off to go to Yale? And so I think mm -hmm. like it's we can't really say that that was him like that was his freedom to choose to do that and that he could have done otherwise. But on the flip mm -hmm. side, if you say like, OK, well, then, you know, his freedom to whatever happened 35 years ago with the you know sexual assault of. Christine Blasey Ford, which I tend to very much believe Dr. Ford, did he choose that also? And I would say, no, I don't think he did choose that. And not even because he was drunk, but more that he probably did not have situations in his life previously where when he tried to get something that and he couldn't get it, that he was penalized for it. He probably was pretty more or mm. less always able to get what he wanted. And because he didn't have that training and those, you know, reaching, you know, those boundaries basically that had been instilled from him, then that was just his brain of optimizing for something that was advantageous to him, but very detrimental to the other party. Yeah. So I think with all court cases, it, it gets so emotional. And certainly if someone does not have those right boundaries and the right self-control, they should not be given high power. But to also to say that it was like their freedom to act in a certain way, I don't know if that's necessarily true. And it wouldn't really change much about our justice system other than I think there'd be more of a focus on rehabilitation versus just pure punishment because it would all be about mm -hmm. rewiring the person's brain so that they're a good member of society versus yeah, like and, penalizing them yeah like you're saying we we focus on the rehab we don't 
we don't need to punish these people, but we also don't necessarily need people that have these predetermined issues. Yeah. In in positions of power. Yeah, in positions of power, or if it's a very very violent person, we still don't want that person roaming the streets. Yeah. Yeah. We we shouldn't necessarily put them in a prison in that situation, which makes them like yeah, even worse. People. Right. Like solitary confinement. Yeah. So if we focus on rehabilitation and also make sure that we, we need to protect society from predetermined patterns, there's, there's a good way for us to get around this. I'm not very optimistic about that actually being a thing because I think humans just have this innate hope for like retribution. Yeah. Um, it's so wired into us. Yeah. Just it's so deep. Well, because fear of retribution is a good way to keep people in line. So the, like the knowledge that if you step on that guy's toe, he might punch you in the face that keeps people from stepping on each other's toes. But yeah, we if, just need a world where stepping on each other's toes is not, a, you know, it's not even desirable. Yeah. And, and we also need a world where, you know, if there's a, a, a dog that gets angry and bites someone, is the right method to lock it in a cage by itself, feed it scraps and kick it every once in a while? Like what kind of dog do you think is going to come out of that cage after, you know, three months of doing that? It's not going to be a better dog than originally came in. If you want to truly rehabilitate and make them members of society, and I agree with you, some people are too far gone and they should not be roaming the streets at all. Lock them away, throw away the key. But I think for most people, it's a gray area and we should focus more on rehabilitation. And we could do a whole episode on the future of prison system or crime and punishment or retribution. We should. Yeah, so we, we will do that. But anyways, let's get on to the final. So we talked about free will. Now let's talk about does God exist? And then the next one is, is there life after death? So Yeah, we can kind of tie those together probably. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, whenever people say, does God exist or do you believe in God? I think, what do you mean by God? That's always like, because that's one question that I feel like people never really ask, but that is the fundamental question. Because when you think about it from the Christian context or any of the major Western religions, God is seen as this separate being that's sort of ro- ruling over his kingdom from afar. So you imagine God up in the clouds, like looking down at earth, deciding what's going to happen. But that is a very monarchical view of God, and there's no real reason to think that that's what God is. And if you believe that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, then it seems like if he's all-powerful, if he has all the power, then there cannot be something separate from him. God is instead just the amalgamation of all power, of all beings. So if you add up all the humans in the world, all the animals in the world, all the fish, you know, all the fish, all the atoms, all the rocks, all the inorganic, all the dark matter. If you add all of that up, that is God. So to have God be something that has any sort of preference whatsoever 
would not fully describe God because you're basically every word slices part of the cosmos to define it as separate from the rest of the cosmos. But if God is everything, then you cannot say a single word about what he is. You cannot say he's good or he's bad or that that he's a jealous God or a just God. You cannot say any of those things because that would put him separate from the, the rest of the whole. So when people say, is there God? Yeah, there is God. I'm God. You're God. We're all God. We're all part of God. But to think of him as something separate is flawed in my mind. It's very narrow. Yeah, yeah. I have a. I'm. I'm very with you on this because when again when we talk about the Christian God, do I think there is some sort of humanoid God up in the clouds, you know, pointing the direction of everything? And, you know, gets jealous and casts people to hell for not believing in him, even though that he gives them no evidence to, you know, just a lot of really crazy things. No, I don't think that's true. And like you're saying, we, what is the definition of God? Like, I've never personally liked the word God. Um, Even from, even from like age I don't know, 10 or 12 sitting in church with my family kind of thing that it's kind of bullshit, I guess. Like what, what's going on, like what's being taught there, you know, it just seems so off. And then once, once I tried to actually become is the, what is the true nature of reality we realize how much we don't know, but we also realize that there's a lot of things going on that we can kind of describe. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard it described as God is that which science cannot yet explain. Yeah, yeah it's like that idiosyncratic thing that we have no idea. Like, we can explain these things and these other things, but there's just this It's kind of a cop area. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of why I don't like the word God, because you could think of God as just a a system of really complex as the chaos and the randomness of reality, or not randomness, depending on, you know, yeah, whatever the, our definition of right. randomness is. Right, it's just it, what, it is basically that. that. God is what's, what is actually true, minus what we know is what it seems like to me. Right. Well, that's, I would say that's what most people refer to when they refer to God, which is basically the mechanism for that, which is not obvious, which, which we don't already know. Like, Oh yeah, that's why that happened. The mis the mystery of life, the mystery of being. But mm-hmm. I think what God should be, as far as the definition should be everything and something that you cannot describe at all. But anyways, we only have a, a few minutes uh, left, so I want to get on to the rest of it. So, is there life after death? Hmm. So this one, again, I, would depend on what you mean by life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do you mean consciousness? Like, is there some sort of consciousness that extends? You, does your consciousness merge with some sort of collective consciousness after death? Has yeah. this life just been some sort of... 
isolated bit of consciousness and then it kind of goes with whatever universal consciousness is and that that even sounds a little mystical maybe there's nothing maybe maybe we just get born into this world or we take a little slice of a universal consciousness yeah i don't know i'm i'm starting to sound like an eastern mysticist (laughs) but well, everything um, does once you get into it far enough, which shows how much the Eastern mystics have. Read. <laughs> but I guess what I would say about is there life after death? I mean, when you know, when I was a kid and I would go to church and Sunday school, they made it seem like life after death was basically, oh, you go to sleep and you wake up and you still remember everything about your previous life. You remember all the people you met and you get to be with all the people who have already died and you get to be with God. And you're frolicking around in a very similar way to you are now on your happiest days. And to me, you know, knowing what I know now, I do not, I cannot believe that that is the case. I, it's much more easy for me to believe that our consciousness lives on. But to believe that the self, the ego that we have built up throughout our life, all of our memories, all of our predilections... I don't I cannot believe that that is continued to me. It's it's it makes a lot more sense that when you die, your atoms, your molecules and your consciousness, your soul, whatever, whatever that is, that gets dispersed throughout the cosmos. And maybe part of you, part of your atoms, part of your consciousness becomes part of a butterfly's atoms and consciousness, part of your atoms, part of your consciousness becomes part of the earth and the soil part of it might become some other creature or inorganic creature and that it's all sort of being recycled in this cyclical sense but to think that you stay together as this inert self i think is 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 it's just not what i believe now the only the only caveat to that is again the many worlds theory the fact that you have other selves that if you believe in the many worlds theory that are existing, maybe that didn't die in what that, you know, train accident or whatever it was. And so I think the fact that we are living now in a sense with the many worlds means that we live forever. If you live for a moment, you live forever because there's only the eternal presence present. So in that sense, I do think that we live for (laughs) Yeah. So, because imagine there's some higher dimensional you that's out there that has gotten beyond the bounds of time. And it's probably not the you that doesn't like peas and that whatever, like you have your own little quirks. It's probably more the essence of you, the archetypal you, which probably is what's, it might be what's common among all people or all people of a certain spirit, or maybe you know, I have a similar personality to one of my dogs, but not the other. So maybe the archetype is both me and that one dog that has a similar spirit to me. And, you know, so it's, Mm. so it's, it's hard to grasp at, but I think in the traditional way of people think about life after death, where you just remember everything and you're hanging with your friends and it's just like old times. I cannot believe in that, but I can believe in other ways of thinking of the problem where, we live forever because of the eternal now and the many worlds theory and where even with the way that we typically think of the world where we die and then something else happens, you know, the series of cause and effect, 
even in that sense, I think we don't die completely because where our atoms and our consciousness is recycled back into the workings of nature and the workings of the cosmos. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, that sounds that sounds like it makes sense to me. Cool. Well, then let's get on to the final question for today, and then we'll we'll wrap up. So the final question is, what is the best moral system? So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, if you're not ready, I have my, my thoughts too. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, um, I tend one. to believe, uh, again, you know, not such a big surprise, but I tend to also agree with Sam Harris on this point, which is that free speech as the highest value is the best moral system. Because all we have are our words. All we have to create a better society and a better world is for us to discuss the different ways that we could be doing things and then to choose the best from among those. I think anytime we we inhibit speech, like with China or Russia or those North Korea, those societies where they do not let people say what they mean, they do not let people report freely, I think that is going to lead to worse and worse societies and worse and worse conscious states of being. Now, of course, there are some forms of speech that should not be allowed. For instance, if you knowingly spread misinformation, I do not think that is protected. So, Because that's a form of manipulation that's not just you speaking your truth. It's you trying to deceive so I would put I would put free will or sorry I would put free speech as the highest value in my society. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean to extend that a little bit, you could say that the best moral system is just discovery and finding what is true because the, I think I think what you said and scientific discovery are so intertwined and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, like we need both. We need a system where finding the truth matters. Mm -hmm. And well, But I don't know if that's like, some people really care about finding the truth, but not all people. You know, people in the Rust yeah. Belt don't care so much about that. They just want to have food on the table. They want to not be in a fight with their wife. They want their kids to love them. So I don't know if it's for all people, it's about finding the truth. I feel like, I guess to extend free uh, free speech for, for my moral system, it would be just maximizing human freedom in general without it impinging on other people's freedom. So maximizing all individual and collective human freedom to do whatever you want, to be an, your own God, demigod, to create your own worlds through VR, to have just choice over how you want to do things, but to not enforce your way of doing things on others at the same time. Yeah. Well, just to play devil's advocate, though, to use your argument, the if you have... Um, Um, yeah, if, if free speech or maximizing freedom is the best moral system, there, I mean, there's a lot of people that also don't want that as a moral system. Like China does not want that right, right. as as a system. So I don't I don't necessarily think it matters that people don't want it. 
if the question is just what what, what is would the best lead to the ultimate system. yeah so so yeah i mean i i still stand by the i think Seeking it's truth. important to find what is true yeah i think that's valid um, yeah but and and that just kind of extends to everything it kind of it because you know there there's a lot of nuances to what is true there's a lot of things that we can find that are inconvenient right well that are I, true i think um you know also to play some devil's advocate for for china I, one thing that i believe is that there should be no not at fault penalties and what i mean by that is you know let's say you're in a situation where you're in a self-driving car and another car that's a manual car veers into your lane illegally like let's say they like run a red light or something and because there are more passengers in that other car that made the illegal maneuver your car decides to crash into a wall kill you just to save the other people i think that is a bad scenario because you did not have any fault and even though utilitarians would have you be killed i think because they went against the rules they should be the ones penalized and so i think in a similar sense like that's that's pretty much the rule in china's philosophy which is that if you don't fit into society and do what you are supposed to do then you should be penalized but if you do everything properly and you know you're not harming anything you're not stirring up the pot then you can have as great of a life within those boundaries as possible and that way everything gets kept under control and everything is maybe not as good as it could be for any individual but it's pretty all right for most of the people so I, yeah there's definitely a, a give and a take between the maximum freedom for individuals but also making sure everything works smoothly and people follow the rules yeah i mean like everything in life there are nuances to right. these questions and there's not necessarily a single answer there's a lot of gray area and overlap between different moral systems that make sense given certain cases totally Awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of today's podcast. This has been the future of philosophy. Thank you all for listening. What has happened? What is currently happening? And what will inevitably happen? The past, the present.